Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Laddermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. So, as you guys know, as you very well know, we are a science podcast, and as such... I really did think that we had to have a podcast that covered the periodic table, one of the awesomest pieces of paper to be put out there. Yeah. And or maybe it covers a whole wall in your lab or in your room or at your office, but it's it's really kind of astounding, all the information that is packed onto this one sheet of paper. Yeah, it, it's one of those things I kind of grew to appreciate because I was kind of bored by the periodic table when I was in school. It was kind of like one more thing you have to memorize and... Well, maybe not memorize. I don't know if we had to memorize. Did it. you memorize? I don't think I memorized <laughs> it. No, no, you had to know because I remember one thing that would come to mind. Like people would be like, "Dude, what if I got a tattoo of the periodic table on like my forearm?" Well, there are periodic table tattoos. Yeah, there are there's all sorts of merchandise. But but then it's but there was kind of like this idea that it was like like teachers wouldn't be able to like get after you for cheating. If it was tattooed in your skin, I don't know. I see. I think so it's kind of flawed logic. As but, a method of cheating. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it really speaks to our, um, our desire to organize the world. I, I think it's one of the ultimate feats of organization that scientists have pulled off. It, yeah. It's pretty spectacular. I mean, these are the building blocks of the universe for the most part, at least yeah, the building blocks universe. for all matter that yeah. we regularly encounter. Let's not get into the whole dark matter thing right well, now. Well, we're not. We're not. That's a whole separate issue. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what does it have on it? It has, yeah, all the elements on it. And so elements, of course, by themselves or in combination with a couple other elements, make up the matter that we see. Yeah. It's good to, to go back to the tattoo on the forearm. Yeah. It's like the whole, even, like even the idea that you could have a tattoo that contained, um, all this data is pretty incredible. It just tells you how, how amazing the periodic table is. It's like the, the ultimate cheat sheet, you know, <laughs> it's like so much data, you know, it's like you see like people who carry like a, a tip calculator card in their wallet or something, you know, and it's just crammed full of numbers, you know, or some other kind of little bits of reference cards that people carry around and, and, and you, you generally have to really abbreviate things big time to make it. Fit. Right. You have to make it really, you have to make your script yeah. very, very small. Did you ever have exams like in college or in high school where you were allowed to bring in a, a cheat sheet? So you would just make it teeny, teeny, tiny. But then yeah. you couldn't find anything on the cheat sheet because it yeah. was so tiny and you're in a panic because you're, you know, trying to hustle through the test. Yeah. I remember, I think I had some classes like that where they were like, you could fill up like one cue card. Yeah. You know, right. And, uh, but that was all you got. Yeah. yeah. And then you never wind up referencing them. Yeah. Or maybe you did. I don't know. I can't speak for you. <laughs> you sneeze on them and then you can't use them. So <laughs> first periodic table was uh, attempted back in the late 1800s. And we have Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev um, to thank for that. He got pretty close mm-hmm. in 1869. And um, he laid the groundwork for what we have come to know and love as the periodic table. Of course, uh, Mendeleev, who was a professor of chemistry at St. Petersburg, he got a little help from another English chemist, a guy uh, by the name of Henry Mosley, who decided to use atomic number rather than atomic weight to organize the elements in the table. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into those two terms a little bit. Um, some of you guys are definitely already familiar with them, but we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit more in a yeah. sec. And some of you may be looking at a periodic table right now, which is cool. That is cool. It uh, would help. Pull, like, unless you're driving. Don't, do not pull up the periodic table if you're driving. I have to say, I've said that a million times. 
Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. You just, that's a warning that never yeah. gets old. Periodic table and driving are not. Yeah, don't do it. Yeah. So nowadays we have a periodic table that starts with hydrogen and it ends with uh, element 118 or un un octium. Those Ooh. are really fun to say, don't you think? Un un octium. Yeah. So that's great. That could be a good band name. If you're looking at a periodic table, you, you notice that elements 113 through 118 get these temporary names. Yeah. And those names are just Latin for the element's atomic number. So, uh, un un trium for element 113, um, that's, that's just going to be the atomic number until it gets a permanent place in the pantheon that is the periodic table. That was a lot of P's in one sentence. Yeah. It's like if you have a litter of kittens born, you just like, it's better to name them like numbers one through 12 until you're really sure who's sticking around. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. right. It's kind of this Latin limbo on the periodic mm-hmm. table, uh, until the whole verification process goes through. So I got to ask, what's your favorite element name? And I'm talking about true or, or real uh, elements as opposed to fictional ones. Hmm. Well, there are a lot of great ones, uh, I, but I think I like scandium. You do? Yeah. Why do you like scandium? What is- uh, there's like a sense like scandium. There's a sense of like scamps and like... Um, it's fun to say. And, yeah. And just scandal? Scandal. It sounds kind of sinister, you know? Scandium. Scandium. I like seaborgum. It's, it's got a nice ring to it. Yeah. It makes me think of a racehorse. Yeah, that one was actually uh, uh, discovered by um, Professor Ernest Seborgnine, right? <laughs> Another mention of Ernest Borgnine. No, that was named after Glenn Seaborg. And uh, there's a great picture of him in our article, which we're, uh, you know, a lot of this research is, is coming from today. We have uh, How the Periodic Table Works. And that was written by Craig, Craig Fordenrich. So thank you, Craig. But anyway, back to Glenn Seaborg. He's the, uh, he's the guy who suggested pulling out the, uh, lanthanoids and actinoids and placing them below the table to make it more compact. So not only does he have an element named after him on the table, which mm-hmm. is no, no small feat, he's the one who, who kind of influenced the way you, uh, the way it's laid out on the page. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. So the table, the, the ultimate table has inspired a lot of fakes. Yes. What's what's one of your favorites? Well, my my absolute favorite is uh, the um, the table of transitional elements from uh, the British um, a comedy Look Around You, which was I've mentioned before on this uh, podcast. It's a, like a mock uh, documentary about science. And oh, I, this was with uh, Leonard Hatred, right? Yes, with Leonard Hatred, right. isn't it? And I actually have a copy of this uh, this fake periodic table uh, over my desk, and it has things like like music is on there. Um, and nothing is on there with an atomic like weight of zero and just just it's just it's worth looking up it's it's available online it's just got all these just everything's ridiculous like france uh it's on there water is on there yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good yeah we get a lot of um the periodic tables sent to us in the fake nature i think people think well you know those guys will appreciate them yeah it's become an internet meme kind of thing like like what's your favorite that you've seen um, when I was hungry, it was definitely the, the fake table or of, um, cupcakes. Remember the Katie of, uh, oh, I don't know if I saw this stuff you missed in history class. Well, don't tell Katie that because I think you're emailed on there. There's also one that I came across that was the, uh, periodic table of swearing, which I don't necessarily advise you to go to because it's pretty graphic. <laughs> I saw one in, uh, uh one for uh, the periodic uh, table of metal, I believe, like heavy metal. Oh yeah. And, I have seen that one. And this one's really interesting, uh, in that is that, when, when I looked it up, it's like there were comments at the bottom of the page and everybody was complaining because everybody's was like everybody's particular favorite metal act was left off or didn't have as much prominence as they thought it should have. So people were like, like, dude, we're Slayer on this or or how can please you please tell me Metallica was number one? Well, I 
don't know if how I forget how it was how it was ranked. Robert, like, how can you not bring that critical information? Well, but, but when you have two podcasts you know, but, to prepare for, I did notice that Meshuggah was not on there, and I was like, they're really good. Why are they not on here? But I don't really know metal all that well. But but the point being is that if you set to out to make a periodic table of metal, you cannot include everything. You end up leaving important to some people important things off. And Are you it, insinuating it, that there's stuff left off uh, the the real periodic table? No, no. I'm I'm pointing out that the real periodic table is is that awesome because it's so inclusive. It's inclusive in ways that a periodic table of metal cannot be. Agreed, agreed. But I think I mean I I do want to talk about this a little later. But I'm not sure that everything is on the periodic table. I mean there are mysteries yet to be discovered. There well, true. Are, it's not complete. Yeah. There's definitely work to be done in particle accelerators yeah. in which. Different elements are but, hurled but, at one another. But no, but scientists aren't coming up to like the the periodic table and like being like, dude, how come gold didn't make this list? You know, right? Agreed. Agreed. You know, it's like the the, the really important stuff is there. It's just we're sort of, you know, we're still expanding. curious. Yeah. So let's break down the contents of the periodic table. What's in a box? Yeah, let's, let's take it one element at a time. And we're not going to do all the elements. <laughs> let's just take one <laughs> element. It's going to be a really, really, really <laughs> long podcast. Sorry, Jerry. Um, so gold. Let's just go for gold. Yeah, that's uh, A. Let's go for the gold. Right. That was good. And where will we find this? If For people playing along at home. Um... Well, gold is going to be um, atomic number 79. So you may or may not see uh, the actual uh, element name, gold, written out. But Found you it. will see, definitely, element symbol. You will see the atomic number, 79, mm-hmm. which uh, is going to denote the number of protons that um, gold has. Mm-hmm. And you're also going to see um, gold's atomic weight. But let's, let me, let me back up. That's the big for, number, right? Yeah. But let me back up for one second. Um, it is worth spending just a second on um, atomic number. So like we said, you'd see the number 79 to... Uh, demarcate gold. So the 79 is telling you that gold has 79 protons, like I was just saying. Mm -hmm. And protons, you guys remember, just those particles with a positive charge in its nucleus. So if you have a neutral atom of gold, you're also going to have 79 electrons. And you don't necessarily have to remember that. The the important thing here is just remember gold, 79 protons. And those 79 protons are what uh, gives gold its spot, its special spot on the uh, periodic table. You're also going to run into atomic weight on the periodic table. And this is a little different. I mean, if you were to not have heard anything about the periodic table before, you might have think that you might have thought that this is the way that the uh, the table would have been organized by weight, right? Yeah, like weight classes in uh, wrestling or boxing, you know, or any kind of sport. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. And and it and it is somewhat. And and this is the mistake that um the the Russian chemist made because he he went and ordered the table Mendeleev which, yes yeah. thank you Mendeleev he uh, ordered it by um, by atomic weight uh, instead of atomic number and that was not quite the right way to go about it and that's because atomic weight kind of fluctuates a little right well yeah so it's you, like human weight you you guys are going to remember that there are a couple different flavors of an element out there you know the isotopes oh yes. I wonder if scientists are cringing right near right now hearing me call it flavors. Well, I hope the science. I've, like I've said before, I hope the scientists are not tuning in to like you know refresh on what the periodic table. Is. They should have this down. <laughs> I think they do. They should have it tattooed on their forearm. They no should get doubt. It so gold weighs almost one hundred and ninety-six point nine six six five six nine atomic units. Got that? Got it. Okay, so 72 atomic number and 196 point something 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 atomic units. 
And like you were just saying, yeah, an element has different isotopes. So think about carbon, um, one of the most plentiful uh, elements on the Earth, mm-hmm. and that has seven different isotopes. So the atomic weight really um, reflects an atom's average mass as it's found in nature. Okay. Got that? Got it. So if you were to group the periodic table by weight, you'd wind up with kind of a different table. So, for example, if you're looking at it now, cobalt and nickel would have to be switched because cobalt has a greater atomic weight than nickel. Hmm. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. It just throws you off a little bit. Now, scientists can be tricky. (laughs) They can. Now, uh, some uh, periodic tables also include uh, mention of its physical state, right? Yeah, what it's it's like when it's hanging around the Earth at at normal temperatures, at room temperatures. Right. So what's gold going to be? Solid. Excellent. Solid gold. <laughs> solid. I kind of wanted you to say solid oh. gold. Do you remember that show? The solid no. gold dancers? No. Oh. There's a really awesome uh, musical act that goes by the name of solid gold. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know any songs that you want to sing right now? I can't sing them, but they're good. Yeah. So the interesting thing about physical state is that apart from a, a couple elements that exist as liquids at room temp, mostly uh, the bulk of the elements that we know of uh, hang out in their solid state. Yeah. Yeah, they're solid. Yeah, you have a few exceptions like mercury, right? Yep, and yeah. francium. Francium. That's that's a real one. <laughs> that's not, a little bit of a sissy element, don't you think? Francium. francium? <laughs> Unless know. it's a hard C, francium. But I, I would think that would be a K. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with francium. If any of you guys want to uh, write in and tell us about the etymology of francium, please do so. And then there's of course a smaller bunch on the periodic table that are gonna hang out as gases. So this was interesting. If you imagine making a sort of small rough triangle that's going across the top right corner of the periodic table, uh-huh. then you kind of have a good idea of where most of the gases are located on the table. So there's a group that you guys may remember called the noble gases or the um, inert gases. And they are the uttermost right-hand column if you're looking at a periodic table. So that's what helium, neon, argon, krypton, xenon, and radon yeah. But then you have to throw in a couple more like hydrogen and nitrogen, oxygen, chlorine, and uh, flu- fluorine. And and that covers you for gases. Cool. Okay. What else are you going to be able to tell if you're looking at the uh, a little box on an, uh, a periodic table, Gold's box? We might be able to tell its classification. So that's just what family it belongs to. Is it a metal? Is it a metalloid? Is it a halogen? Uh, is it one of those noble gases that we were just talking on? And a lot of about- these uh, periodic tables use uh, like color coding to denote some of these things. Yeah. It does vary wildly, though. Like I saw one that was uh, arranged according to uh, the elements discovery. Mm-hmm. I should restate that. The elements on the periodic table, their, their place doesn't change, but the, the colors do. And depending upon how uh, deluxe your, your periodic table is, like you let me look at your iPhone, which I was wowed enough by because I'm such a laggard in technology, and it had that really cool iPhone app. That was from EMD, I believe. EMT? Is that- e- D, as in dog. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Free free app. Uh, there are a number of different uh, periodic table apps, and, and they're really cool because you can just you, know, you touch it, you know, pop up an element, get all the stats on it. Yeah, it gives you a ton of information. Mm-hmm. And so that's cool. So you might learn stuff like its atomic radius, its melting and boiling points, its density, its oxidation state, its mineral hardness, isotopes and their prevalence, ionization energy, and electron configuration, among other things. So that's what you're going to get with a really premium quality periodic table, a whole lot of information. Yeah. So what can you tell by looking at the whole table? Okay. So a table is going to be organized in rows. Mm-hmm. 
pretty easy to picture. Right. And these rows, confusingly enough, are uh, often called periods as well. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna call them rows okay. for this for this uh, podcast, just so you guys don't have to think about periods too. Um, so each row is going to tell you a little something about how the electrons of that element uh, behave in their energy levels, their, their shells occupied by the electrons that uh, you know are kind of buzzing around the nucleus of that element. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're looking at hydrogen and helium, that's going to tell you that it um, these two elements have a first energy level that can only hold two electrons max. So that's what that one denotes. It has okay. that one uh, level for electrons, essentially. So let's go down one. We're going to shift to uh, the second row. And then you're going to have two energy levels now. And that's where uh, so the first energy level will be filled with electrons. And you're going to have another one. And that begins to fill. Okay. And these they're they're... I should mention that um, these levels also have sublevels called orbitals, but this is a podcast, and I feel like yeah, we don't want to get too uh, too, too in depth here. So I mean, that's why it's a table and not a song, you know. <laughs> so it goes all the way up to seven. Um, there are seven different energy levels, each with their own uh, sublevels, uh, except for that first row. No known element yet has eight uh, energy levels full of electrons. So it's kind of cool. So mm-hmm. looking at your periodic table. Yep, hydrogen has uh, just that one energy level. And whoa, francium, again, mentioned on the podcast, has seven. Wow. See, don't don't rule out francium just because you don't like its name. It's got a, it's got a lot going on. Yeah. Right? It's, at least it's got a lot of electrons going on. Francium would be a good name for a cat, I think. Okay, so we got our rows, right? Well, of course, we have columns because it's a table. Mm-hmm. So the columns that comprise the periodic table are called groups. How many in total? 18, 18. <laughs> Sorry, I was a bit slow there. That's okay. That's okay. So groups are just going to indicate um, these families that we're talking about with similar chemical and physical properties. So like, again, the noble gases. Um, and you can also detect a couple of trends when you're looking at the periodic table. All right. So now we know about, you know, different energy levels just by looking at it. We can tell. And now we know that, uh, what family it's in. Because again, a lot of them are metals. In fact, 80% of the elements, or roughly 80% of the elements on the uh, periodic table are metals. A lot of metals going on. Yeah. Actual metal, not, not heavy metal. Right. We yeah. should, we should clarify that. Because we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. You can, you can detect a couple of other things if you want to wow your friends with your periodic table knowledge. So, Ionization energy, right? Mm-hmm. What is ionization energy again? It's really, it's pretty straightforward. It's just the amount of energy that um, an element, an, an atom of an element has to exert to strip away the first valence electron, and that's that's the uh, the outermost electron that's that's farthest from the nucleus, the okay. one that's really ripe for the picking, if you will. Right, the Pluto of the uh, the uh, element, if you will. <laughs> So looking at your periodic table, the ionization energy tends to decrease as you move down a column and increase as you move across a row from left to right. So you're doing that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's ionization energy in a, in a bit of a nutshell or an orbital shell. <laughs> nice. Um, and you can also tell some stuff about electronegativity. And electronegativity is going to tell us about how good elements are at attracting electrons to them. So electronegativity... Uh, is going to, again, decrease as you go down a column and increase as you go across a row from left to right. Okay, so if you're looking at it, now you can tell ionization energy and you can tell electronegativity. You can he- tell um, how good it is at stripping away electrons, and you can tell at how good it is at attracting electrons to them. Got it? Got it. Okay, so let's talk about nuclear charge. 
So this is going to increase as you go down the table. And that kind of makes sense, considering that nuclear charge just means the attractive force between the, the positive protons in the nucleus. I guess that's redundant. The protons in the nucleus and the, the uh, negative electrons in the energy shells. So the more protons, the greater the nuclear charge. And I know you guys are going to remember that what is atomic number? Atomic number is just the number of protons you got going on in an element. So hydrogen, is it going to have a really great nuclear charge? Probably not, because no. it has an atomic number of one. Something uh, that's, you know, a heavyweight on the uh, periodic table, going to be a little bit better. Gonna like have cassium? A... Where is that? Cassium at like 108. 108. That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I think that's a heavyweight. Yeah. If we were just uh, talking about this in the uh, Science vs. Monsters, I think Hassium would win. Yeah, totally. And then shielding is uh, just the ability of, of an element and its inner electrons to shield the outer electrons from, from being stripped away, from being stolen. So the more energy levels, remember, the energy levels increase as you go down the table, mm-hmm. uh, the more shielding ticks. Oh. So there's really a lot of information here. If you, uh, like some of it is yeah. pretty obvious and some of it you kind of have to know how to look for, but. Yeah, basically we know a lot about, uh, electron behavior hmm. and how, how good elements are taking them, taking electrons, stealing them, attracting them. So back to Francium for a second. Um, h- how do they choose these names? It's a pretty complicated process and, and it may take years. And so they're a little superstitious about it. Scientists are, um, I don't think they, Similar, I think in uh, in Jewish culture, you uh, you don't talk about names before a baby comes. You don't have like showers and hmm. stuff like that. You just you know do it all after the fact. And you and you can't just say like, "Oops, I found an element. I'm calling it um, like bonium or something." You know, you can't just come up with something. Yeah, yeah, okay. no, no, no. I think that's frowned upon uh, unless maybe you're Einstein. <laughs> but Einstein back in the day, I'm not so sure he could have gotten an element name officially passed through UPAC. Um, so. I was reading a pretty funny New York Times article on Element 117 back when uh, the Russians and the Americans produced it in April 2010. Mm-hmm. And they were working at a, a Russian particle accelerator. And and they were pointing out that there's this really involved process. So one of the quotes that I liked um, told the New York Times reporter, well, we've never discussed names because it's sort of like bad karma, she said. It was a she. It's like talking about a no-hitter during the no-hitter. We've never spoken of it aloud. Huh. So while she was working on uh, producing Element 117, they just they didn't talk about it. It was like the big elephant or element in the room. Oh, man, they should call it the Scottish Palladium. How about that? See, because Macbeth. Yeah, sorry. Bad joke. <laughs> and then the other interesting thing that comes out of it is um, how do we make new elements? Well, that, yeah, that's uh, really interesting because you mentioned particle accelerators. Right. Yeah, and... Uh, it's uh, like basically you want to accelerate these particles and things like the Large uh, Hadron Collider, uh, you know, get them going really fast. And it's kind of like you ever watch the Adams Family? Yeah. All right. You know how Gomez would set up the train tracks? Yes. So that the two trains would run into each other? Well, they're doing that except with particle streams. And the particles hit and then you get pieces everywhere. And in the wake of those pieces, things come together in uh, – Abnormal new ways, yeah, new combinations, but only for a brief amount, brief amount of time. It's kind of like when, uh, like when couples break up and then people are on the rebound, and then those those the new relationships only last for like a brief second. Yeah, you know? the rebound then, relationship, totally. Yeah, and then you only know they existed by looking at the chaos that happened when they they came apart. It's the same thing. It, you look for the decay products, um, 
the aftermaths of, of these new uh, elements. Right, right. So, um, again, uh, I was reading this, this New York Times article, and they were talking about how kind of simple, uh, well, simple, simple in idea, um, making un un septium might be. <laughs> I do feel like I'm talking a new language, which I guess I am. Well, an old language, Latin, when I say that, un un septium. Un un septium. Uh, so element 117. So what are you going to do? You're going to try smashing calcium with its 20 protons at uh, the element name for Berkeley, which I'm going to go with berkelium. Hmm. And uh, that element has 97 protons. So what's that? 97 plus 20 to create an element with 117 protons, which is what... Un un septium is. Wow. So, so we can make this at home in our own particle accelerators. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. Definitely. Cool. Except for the fact that it's kind of hard to, uh, create berkelium or berkelium. I like berkelium better. I'm going with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other tricky thing is, right, as you were alluding to before, it's only for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fleeting. So you have to be prepared to, to analyze the decay products. And scientists are more than capable of doing that. I am happy to report. Yeah. The other interesting thing here is, I mean, we are talking about the fleeting nature of some of these uh, new elements, but there's a theory going on that as we move up in atomic number, we're approaching this um, island of stability in which the heavier elements become more stable. So maybe once we reach a critical point, it won't be so hard to uh, create these elements anymore. It'd be interesting. And it comes back around, to, like we were talking about earlier, um, it's not a finished table. We yeah. Keep, we keep discovering new things and we'll continue to discover new things and... Uh, Add them to the table. So update regularly if you have that that app, right? Yeah, no doubt. Although I feel like we should we should take a second to just admire the glory of the periodic table, even if it is an incomplete work, because it is a complete incomplete work. Does that make sense? Sort of, yes. Wow, so I think the only way to uh, follow that up is to chase it down with a little uh, listener mail. You have uh, have something there? I do. I have one from uh, Jordan who wrote in in response to the Altruism in the Animal Kingdom podcast. We did a little while back. Yeah, and this was like, why are animals nice to each other kind of things. And we also talked, why are humans ever nice to each other? Right. And one of the things we mentioned was um, when uh, people donate their organs to complete strangers. And uh, sometimes sometimes this has been called like the ultimate act of altruism. Um, So so Jordan wrote in. Shortening your own life to help save somebody else's. Well, I don't know that you're shortening your own life if you're giving up a kidney. Oh, well, maybe, maybe not. You're but giving away an organ, but not necessarily. I'm, I'm not sure. Sometimes it's framed that way. I yes. don't know. Okay. So he uh, he wrote in to illuminate his own experience with giving away a kidney to a complete stranger. So I really wanted to read this to you guys. So he writes, I thought I'd write in about your altruism podcast, seeing as I have some experience with one of the topics. Last year, I decided to donate one of my kidneys to a stranger. The whole altruism topic was very strange for me. I suppose there was part of me that did it for a pat on the back, although it wasn't conscious thought. After going through all the tests at the hospital to see if I was if I was a good candidate, they called me up in the middle of an accelerated summer semester in grad school, so it's a smart kidney too, hmm. saying that they needed my kidney now. It became a logistically difficult prospect at that point, but I decided that this was something bigger than my silly grades, so I went for it. So Jordan goes on to talk a little bit about the surgery. Um, and then he goes, I hadn't told any of my family except for my wife that I was doing this. My brother's reaction was especially interesting. He refused to believe that I hadn't done this for money, which is very illegal in the United States, by the way. Yes. I was actually a little offended. He thought it wasn't possible for me to do a selfless act. 
One of my family members also mentioned the concern of, what if I need a kidney in the future? I found that while the majority of people think my donation was commendable, others find the idea grotesque. Okay. Are you ready for this? He says, I did get some media attention, which I hated. It was very strange to be put under the microscope and have the media break apart such a complicated and emotional topic into a 60-second news piece. I hope and I hope that you guys don't think we're doing this. I really just wanted to share this listener email because I, I, I did think it was an interesting insight into altruism. I would never... Yeah, I, I really appreciate his honesty and, and you know, you know, just sort of talking about how he, how he felt and throughout the process. So he mentions a little bit more. He says, at this point, I don't feel better, worse, or different for having donated. The act itself has not changed my self-image. If anything, I feel a little embarrassed when the topic is broached. Interestingly, I I feel more proud of myself for being a donor advocate and volunteering, uh, doing some volunteer work. Um, donation has become an interesting science and math game for me. My one kidney given to a stranger started a kidney exchange that allowed seven others to acquire a kidney. That's cool, but I think if I can convince one person to do the same thing, then I'll feel proud. A few more non-directed donors like me could chip away at our huge waiting list. Is this altruistic? I have no idea. By the way, my grades didn't suffer and I got straight A's that semester. Jordan. So that's so interesting. Yeah. And, and a cool story. I mean, I, I think it's very commendable. Yeah, absolutely. So, as always, we love to hear from you guys. Thank you, Jordan, very much for writing and sharing uh, sharing your story with us on altruism and and kidneys. Yeah. Uh, if you want to share anything with us, science or kidney related, uh, do send us an email at science stuff at howstuffworks dot com. Yeah, like pretty much anything. You know, I mean. Let, let us yeah, know, we're like, just sitting here writing and talking about science, yeah. so we love to hear from we you guys. We can probably spin a podcast, you know, out of it if it's a, kind of an interesting tidbit. Yeah, we have to get to some of the science quotes that people have said. Maybe we'll do that yeah, in the yeah. podcast. Yeah, some really good ones in there. Yeah, and as always, do connect with us on on Facebook. We're stuff from the science lab. Yep, and on Twitter, we are lab stuff. Yeah, so that's it. Thanks for listening, guys. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.